Hey, my name's Alex, and welcome to Alex Listens. This is the place where I talk about things like philosophy and politics and identity and psychology and race and mental health and that kind of stuff. So you might be wondering, who are you, Alex, and what's this podcast about? Well, I guess it's an exploration of all of those themes that I just listed, but it's also a YouTube channel where I film myself talking about this kind of stuff and record interviews with people. So yeah, there's a podcast, which you might be listening to now, but there's also a YouTube channel, which you should definitely go and subscribe to. Just type in Alex Listens on YouTube, and then you can see my face moving and words coming out of my mouth. Um, So today I spoke with a political philosopher and lecturer at my university, the University of Melbourne. His name is Dan Halliday. And we spoke about I guess, chiefly, the ethics of capitalism. Um, You know, capitalism, what is it? This structure that everyone talks about all the time and blames for all of our problems. Neoliberalism, what's that? Politics, what's that? Uh, Market forces, um, the free market, the invisible hand, Adam Smith, John Stuart Mill, utilitarianism. What are all of these things and how do they fit together? So yeah, I guess to kind of briefly give you an overview of what we spoke about, We began by sketching a definition of capitalism that we could work with. And then we kind of looked at capitalism in the world, um, examples of it, um, and maybe examples of things that we would traditionally interpret to be capitalist, but, you know, actually have, you know, more feudal, um, dictatorial undertones and underpinnings. Um, So, yeah, I guess for me, this was quite an eye-opening conversation because uh, I guess a lot of the time... I describe things and I, you know, uh, the way I understand problems in the world is that I understand them as being products of capitalism. Um, And I guess this conversation kind of challenged that, or at least it challenged the terminology that I use to describe problems. Um, And that's why I think this is such an important conversation. That's why I think you should listen to it, because I guess... One of the things that I've taken away is that I need to be a whole lot more careful with the way I describe my political allegiance. You know, it's it doesn't really mean anything to say that I'm on the left. Um, It doesn't really mean anything to say that I'm anti-establishment. It doesn't really mean anything to say, you know, um, yeah, you know, that like I want, you know, centralized things. I want I don't want everything to be privatized. Um, You know, it has to fit into the context of a society that is much more complex than either being centralized or having, you know, um, centralized or decentralized ownership. Um, So yeah, I guess that's what we spoke about. Briefly, before I play you the interview, um, if you're enjoying Alex Listens, there are a number of ways that you can support it. So I don't have ads and this is free. Um, But if you're enjoying it, you can support it on Patreon, which is a very easy platform to use. You just press a few buttons and it will help me afford to keep the podcast running. Also, there's a PayPal thing that you can click somewhere. There'll be a link in my bio or on my website, www.alex.co slash contribute. Otherwise, you know, if you've enjoyed the podcast, leave a review on Apple Podcast. It takes like five seconds and it will help more people find out about the podcast. Or you know, take that into your own hands and tell a friend. If there's someone who you think would benefit from one of these conversations, tell someone, tell them, hey, there's this podcast, I like it, you should listen to it. Or share it on your social media. Um, All of that would be muchly appreciated. Otherwise, remember, if you ever want to get into contact with me, you can. I'm on Facebook at Alex Listens, on Instagram at Alex Listens, and my email is contact at alex.co, A-L-E-K-S dot C-O.
yeah otherwise enjoy the interview bye Okay, cool. Well, Dan, hello. How are you? Thanks for coming on. Hi, Alex. I'm 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 good, and and thanks for having me on. Thanks very much. Cool. Um, yeah, and I mean, what a what a time to be talking about um, the ethics of capitalism, which is, uh, I guess, yeah, a a big descriptor for your area of interest, um, but also a I guess a main feature of a lot of conversation at the moment because of <laughs> because of pretty much everything that's happening um, in the world. Um, so yeah, I guess I will have given you a brief kind of you know summary as a person in the intro that I do. But um, for listeners who don't know who you are, or for you know, do you have like a a thing that you say to kind of you know? <laughs> <laughs> who are you, Dan? <laughs> uh, uh, hi, I, I'm, I'm Dan. I guess most people listening don't know who I am. So um, I, I, I teach political philosophy at, at Melbourne University and I'm, I'm just coming up to about 10 years, I think, in, in that role. So that's a bit of a milestone. And um, yeah, The Ethics of Capitalism is, is the title of a class that I've been teaching at the uni for ooh, about, about five years, I think. Uh, and it's also the title of a book that I co-authored, um, teach the class by myself, but wrote the book with someone else uh, that came out earlier this year. Um, well, coming out around about now in Australia. And that, and that book evolved out of the class. So it's a sort of, it's a sort of textbook for classes like that. Um, so that, that's, that's me, <laughs> uh, at least professionally. Um, yeah, and I'm interested in all things all things about justice and, and economics and where they intersect, uh, which is a lot of stuff. And mm. um, there's a lot of stuff before the pandemic, but the pandemic is either not so much creating new questions, but I think showing, shifting the emphasis a little bit and showing, you know, the, where the urgency lies and just um, <clears throat> forcing us to confront certain questions that perhaps we downplayed in the past um, or, or, or took less seriously and, and hopefully forcing governments and institutions to, do things better in, in, in some cases and no doubt causing a lot of disagreement along the way. Mm. Yeah. Right. Um, okay. And you, you were kind enough to have sent me a copy of your book. Um, I, I'm very grateful. Thanks very much. I've worked through, um, as much as I could reasonably have done in a week. Um, and it's actually a, a really, uh, yeah, despite, you know, me kind of having my reservations about university textbooks, this is probably the furthest away from, you know, a university textbook uh, possible. Um, and I guess, you know, you kind of outline in the intro or you have this kind of preface for students. Um, and yeah, I guess, yeah, uh, it, it really, yeah, I guess it does kind of lay the foundations for you know, asking these questions that you're talking about, like, how are we going to proceed? Um, you know, what, what does it mean to, to live in a capitalist society? Um, what is capitalism? Um, I guess one thing that I didn't do was read your most recent chapter, which I believe is on the relationship between capitalism and the pandemic. Um, um, so maybe, maybe we could, yeah, maybe we could begin 
Maybe, okay, actually, um, I think I think because one thing that you actually do note in the first chapter, I believe, is um, the ambiguity and the confusion surrounding terms used to talk about, I don't know, the political economy um, and to talk about politics in general. So I guess, you know, uh, traditionally, I've described myself as someone on the left. Um, but, you know, what on earth does that mean? Um, I guess I, you know, you can go a bit deeper and say, you know, I'm I'm a progressive who, you know, is kind of anti-establishment and, you know, for centralized things. But then, you know, these terms are still so vague. So I guess, um, I don't know, like, do you, do you think it'd be helpful to sketch like a working definition of capitalism for us to have a think about over the next, however long the conversation goes for? Or- yeah. Yeah, that would be a good place to start. And of course, we, we, we can and should get onto the pandemic um, yeah. as well. But um, for, so first of all, look, I'm, I'm very glad you, you found the book easy to read. And I'm actually very glad to hear that it, I've got nothing, I don't want to bag out other textbooks, but I'm, I'm sort of glad you didn't find it like a textbook because if I can just speak briefly about the origins of the book, it, mm. it did kind mm. of do it by accident, which sounds like a strange thing to say. Uh, and of course, in one sense, it did get written on purpose, but it, it evolved out of handouts for my classes. Um, so the ethics of capitalism class, when I kicked it off a few years ago, I, I gave students you know, primary texts. I gave them some of the older uh, material, you know, the old dead white men um, like Adam Smith and John Stuart Mill and, and the contemporary material, you know, the journal articles, you know, on, 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 contem- on very contemporary problems. But that's a lot of material. Um, and you know, students got other things. Students aren't like me who can spend their whole time or their whole working time just reading political economy. They got other things going on in their life, and you know, they need a bit of help condensing things. And that, that in a sense, is what all textbooks do. But this this textbook started off because I'd written these long handouts for the classes, and I thought, sort of stopped and thought, hang on, these handouts are getting so long that you could just take a stapler to them, right, and and then have a book. Mm-hmm. And, that's kind of what happened next. I went and looked up John Thrasher, who was working down in Monash at the time. He's since gone back to America. And I said, look, I mean, I can't really do this by myself. Do you want, do you want to help out? And he was, he was up for it. And then we just sort of bashed it out pretty quickly. And, well, then it got slowed down by the sort of, you know, the mechanisms of publication, which I won't go into. But um, <laughs> it's sort of, it, that's how it got written by accident. You know, I really wanted to teach the class, first mm. of all. And I wanted to sort of give students something about capitalism which, as, as you've alluded to, is a lot of talk about capitalism and a lot of moralised talk, you know. Um, but not a lot of, and, and, and you know, what, what's out there is good, but there's not this sort of attempt to, it's all in the kind of rapid-fire news cycle. The good thing about a class is you can say, hang on a minute, let's go through this slowly, you know, and, and, and figure out what the concepts are and, and figure out how we want to address some of these questions once we've identified them. And um, So that, that's, that's sort of the origin of the of the class and then hence subsequently the origin of the book. So mm. in, in perhaps that way, it's unlike other textbooks. In fact, I guess the stereotype of a textbook is that it's written by someone who's been knocking around for a, it's a little bit, you're a little bit up yourself if you just say, I'm going to write a textbook because I'm the, <laughs> you're kind of saying, I know everything. Right. And um, the, the, one of the nice things about teaching and studying political economy is no one does. I mean, a lot, a lot of these questions in the book, the students know more than me because they participate in the relevant bits of the market. So, you know, students who've worked as, 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 as waiters or, or, or delivery riders or, or what have you have all got a perspective on that bit of the, of the economy that, that I don't have. Maybe I had a version of it 20 years ago when I used to work in 
well, the British version of Bunnings. Um, but that, no one really knows everything. And, and so I think we've, we've tried to write the textbook in that spirit and hopefully, hopefully that has worked. Um, but uh, yeah, you, you, that, that's just a bit of background about the book, but definitions and, and capitalism and left wing versus right wing and progressive and, and you know, anti-establishment. What does it all mean? How does it all fit together? Well, I'll just, I'll just interrupt you there. So really quickly, I actually thought um, I was meaning to ask you about, uh, I'm not sure if this is the, the most, the best time, but I was wondering why you decided to write a textbook as opposed to like, I don't know, a podcast or like a YouTube series or like, because I don't know, like I, I wonder about, I wonder about the access of the institutions to the outside world or the access of the outside world to the institutions. And I guess to me, traditionally textbooks, apart from pretty much probably apart from yours, textbooks are, um, at least from the ones that I've actually tried to engage with, most of the others are super specific and don't really have very much to do with the world outside of academia. So, yeah, I guess I was curious as to why, you know, were there any other motivations apart from like, you know, wanting to have a, a more succinct and helpful resource for your class? Were there other motivations for writing a book? Yeah, so it's a bunch of motivations. I mean, first of all, like I said, I felt I was halfway there with my hmm. hand out. Turned out I wasn't quite halfway there. Yeah, okay. I was already on the road to writing a book rather than making a podcast. Mm. See what I'm, mm-hmm. um, I'm interested in, you know, I did, I did make a, a TV series um, on, on practical ethics, which had sort of given me, while I really enjoyed it, it made me realise that you, putting this sort of stuff together was a lot, a lot harder than conventional writing if, if, you know, if, if you're working by yourself or just with, with one co-author. So in a way, writing something is just sort of sticking to what I know and, and sticking to what I'm well, frankly paid for. Um, <clears throat> but um, writing is also fun, right? Mm. I mean, and in, in, in a way, writing this book was more fun than writing anything else. Not that I've written heaps and heaps and stuff, but I've written one other book, for example, and I've written, you know, the usual load of journal articles and whatnot. And actually... This is more fun to write, partly because you haven't got to jump. Well, there's all sorts of reasons. It's, it, it can be more conversational. It's less hyper-specialized. You feel like you're talking with students, which is in many ways more fulfilling than mm. talking with um, you know, fellow professionals, partly because of what I said earlier about the students are, they've got their own expertise. Um, and so when you're writing for them, you, you have this feeling of giving them something that they can link to their own experience, which, which I found quite enjoyable. <clears throat> um, you mentioned access and, and the sort of specialization of textbooks. One comment I'd make as a, you know, as a member of the higher education profession is that where you see textbooks tend to be in academic disciplines with frankly captive audiences, captive markets of students. So law, medicine, economics, there's a lot of agreement in those disciplines about what people have to learn. Hmm. Uh, and that, that, that's, that's not a bad thing, right? I mean, it stands to reason like, med, like every single medical student, you want them to know, there's some, there should be some standardization there. That's, I think, a fair, a fair point to make about what those, what, what those kinds of degree programs are for. Uh, but once you've got that, you can actually make quite a lot of money in theory because if everyone has to learn something, mm. once you've written something on that, you can sort of sell it to all of them. Whereas in philosophy or, or the humanities, a textbook will really just get by on, on whatever own merits it has, right? If people don't like this book or they don't want to learn about ethics of capitalism, they don't have to. I know it's not like a it's not like a medical student who never learned about 
well, I don't know, whatever it is they're supposed to learn about, about paracetamol, you know, it, it's, <laughs> there aren't, there isn't something you absolutely must know or the degree program doesn't work. People might disagree with that, but you know, in practice, that's, that's why textbooks in law, medicine, economics are written because once they're there, they can, they, they go for a lot of money. I mean, you see the retail price on a textbook in law. So if I may say so, it's a lot higher than the retail price of this book. Um, and you know, the, the, at the end of the day, publishing is a business and the publisher will want to make money. But you know, the book's an ebook. Anyone who's enrolled in a university can just get it that way. Um, and you know, that's, that's good. That's not mm. something you'll with, with textbooks and, and other disciplines necessarily. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I actually uh, had the, I was about to say I had the fortune, but it was definitely the misfortune of spending two and a half years of my life studying a law degree. Um, and so, yeah, I was financially and morally bankrupted by um, the textbooks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, I was the, the damned target audience. Yeah. Ironically, I wanted to study law, but I couldn't really? get the grad. Yeah, I wanted to do well in Britain, where I'm from. Law, law is still an undergraduate degree, like like it is in, in not in University of Melbourne, but elsewhere. Mm. But I couldn't I couldn't get the well, we don't have an ATAR, but I couldn't get the analog, you know, the the grades to get into law. So philosophy was my fallback option, and I guess once I was in it, I liked it enough to just sort of stay there. Mm. Well, trust me, Dan, you've dodged you've dodged the mightiest of bullets. Um, <laughs> it's yeah. It's, uh, I mean, yeah, like, uh, I'm sure there's actually, like, especially in this book, there's a lot of, um, especially in, in, you know, your area of, of expertise or your area of research, it seems like there's a lot of discussion of policy and of, you know, legal practice and of legal foundations of, you know, society that guide us. Before I rudely interrupted you, I was going to get you to, uh, to sketch, um, you know, something that we can grapple with when we say, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe just when we say capitalism, like what? What are we actually talking about? Good. Yes, and and that a big part of the agenda of the book, and very much in the early chapters, is to try and deliver some kind of answer to this kind of question, right? Albeit without trying to persuade people, you know, while respecting the scope for disagreement that, that there will be. First thing I'll say is a kind of formal point, right? So before we we get to a definition. Um, I think a definition shouldn't be so binary. So we, we're used to thinking about left wing, right wing, yeah, or somewhat parallel, socialism, capitalism, or, or communism, capitalism, as if there's sort of, there's sort of extreme points on a line, right? as if what you've got, when, when, you, when you've got some kind of economic system of governance or some kind of state of, state of the economy, you've, you've got something in between those two extremes, but that's it. Um, and one, one point we tried to defend in the book is that, look, whatever you think about, whatever the arguments for and against capitalism and socialism, we, we, it's unhelpful to think of things in such a one-dimensional way. And so whilst capitalism and socialism are possible systems and have to some extent been realised in various countries at various times, there's, there's at least one other system which is, which is feudalism, which is sort of associated with the, the past, with sort of pre-industrial Europe or, you know, history um and really we should we should think of the economic status quo as actually being more of a hodgepodge of capitalist socialist and feudalist elements allowing that countries go more you know towards one than the other two but really the, the set of possibilities instead of being a line you know left wing right wing socialism capitalism what we actually have in the book is a triangle uh where you know 
logical space is two-dimensional biological space we mean just the range of possible scenarios and feudalism capitalism and socialism are the are the extreme points if you like and so take a country like australia in the 21st century well we, we know we, we, we think of australia as a capitalist country maybe not as capitalist as some other countries but look i mean what are the various aspects of the status quo well, we've still got things like inherited wealth and there's no inheritance tax in australia which I'm always surprised that some people just don't, don't realise that. But you know, inheritance is playing a big role in the distribution of wealth. But is that really a capitalist thing? Well, it's got nothing to do with markets, right? It's not really capitalism um, that, that makes it the case that some people inherit. It's not really socialism either, though, is it? Because it's, it's not about, it's private ownership. And actually, in, in, you might argue, you know, you might disagree, but you might argue, and, and we argue, that inheritance is more of a move towards feudalism, right, where your prospects in life aren't settled by the market, regardless of what we think about the market. They're settled uh, or, they're, or they're strongly influenced by what happened up your family tree. Mm. Doesn't mean you have to like or dis, you know, that, that doesn't settle the question of what we ought to do when it comes to regulating these kinds of practices, but it draws attention to the way in which, well, we think we're a capitalist society, we think we're a market society, and then we find something that looks like it doesn't really belong either under the, the definitions of capitalism or socialism. So the triangle, and I haven't given those any definitions yet, right? But I'm, I'm just saying that we, we should get away, there's reason already to get away from this one-dimensional left-wing, right-wing way of thinking, right? Now, definitions, I'll, we can get onto that right now if you like. Um, in the book, we, we suggest that, look, capitalism is really about the balance of markets. or It's about the promotion of market order, if you like. Markets will get will get up anyway, right? You get markets in you know prisons, and you get systems of exchange of goods and services, even when they're strongly prohibited, right? So mm. capitalism isn't just markets; it's got to be something to do with the promotion of markets, when the government is actually making an effort to enhance and, and spread markets rather than actually stop them. Mm. Um, so, what happens when when government does that? Well, we argue that capitalism is about some kind of careful balancing act between market freedoms, which are, you know, property rights, freedom of contract, but also conditions of competition. And this is where it gets a bit interesting and hopefully a bit more helpful. But capitalism isn't really, capitalism isn't really quote unquote free markets. In fact, and we're not the only people to say this, um, free markets are kind of a misnomer, okay? The idea of a free market promotes the idea that markets are just this force that just sort of happens and government just gets in the way. Now, there's some, you know, as I've said, markets will get up, you know, un under very, very constrained conditions. You'll get markets in prisons. We don't really call them free markets. Um, but really, markets aren't free or unfree. Markets are systems of exchange that can be supported as well as interfered with by government institutions. Now, quick and easy example, markets really benefit from there being a system of cash. Okay. I mean, you can have markets without cash, right? Like the markets in prisons where people just swap you know, barter and things like that. But cash really helps things. And I think we all agree with that. But you can't just have, you know, if you and me, you know, go, go into some shed and, and make some cash hmm. on, on grounds that we're giving people what we want and it's a free market, the word for that is forgery, right? Yeah. I mean, we, we, you, can't, you can't just make cash for people. Even It's not like making cups of coffee for people. And that, again, that's not a controversial point, but it, the only way to make sense of it is to allow that government actually has to constrain certain kinds of actions and limit our freedom 
so uh, in, uh, so as to promote market order, right? So go and you can think of a bunch of other examples about the government provides infrastructure, it provides other kinds of supporting institutions that make markets happen. So free markets is a misnomer. What what you have is market freedoms, I suppose, which is the freedoms that people have when they participate in markets, um, and and the freedoms that you know maybe companies and organisations have too, right? And that's owning stuff and being able. People and companies can own stuff, swap stuff, sign contracts, etc. Those are your market freedoms. But the market's only really worth having if you have competition, if you don't have monopoly, if you don't have... And this is perhaps the bit that's most underappreciated. Um, capitalism has a balance between freedom and competition, which is how capitalism was defended by these old dead white guys, at least the ones that feature in the book. Um, requires that you don't get you know, one, one business running everything and that everyone the barriers to entry are low, that everyone can have a go um, at participating in an economy. And that's more than just giving people freedom and letting the cards fall as they might, right, which is a sort of laissez-faire doctrine. John Stuart Mill in his big book, The Principles of Political Economy, the last chapter of the 82, or whatever it is, <laughs> is all about the limits to laissez-faire, about how, look, if you're serious about market order, it makes no sense to have a hands-off approach. Mm. That's kind of a long answer. Let me summarize it. Capitalism, <laughs> is about, capitalism is about a proper balance between market freedoms and conditions of competition. And if you want to have competition, that means you're going to restrict people's freedom in, in certain ways. But also you're going to, there, there are parallels between competition and something like equality of opportunity. Mm. Yeah, great. Okay. Um, okay, I think that really, really clarifies or really gives, gives us a lot to work with. Um, yeah, I think one thing one thing that I was aware of actually, but I, I'm not sure whether listeners were. Um, and one thing that I actually don't think is really general knowledge in Australia, or that is really discussed among you know groups of time that groups of groups that I spend time with, is the inheritance tax. Um, and yeah, that's a very interesting. I imagine, in terms of opening up a whole bunch of kind of ethical questions, um, inheritance tax is you know, a, a, a very, very confusing and um, almost anti-capitalist uh, um, thing, right? Because um, I guess, you know, when like I went to a public school uh, in Victor in Melbourne, actually very close to the University of Melbourne. Um, and, uh, you know, I when I went to law school, I met a lot of people who were privately educated. Um, and, you know, there were histories of large inheritances that were passed down from, you know, hundreds of years ago, um, which were, you know, drawn on by families and generations to fund things like private schools, which cost, you know, $40,000 a year or something. Um, and in terms of trying to, you know, have a, trying to live in a system or trying to create a system where there is market freedom, that seems, and where, where, and where there is equal footing, so where we don't have, you know, some kind of heavy, determined fate based on the family that we're born into, you know, apart from, you know, genetics and whatever, um, you know, it seems like the inheritance taxes, you know, seems to really stifle that because, or, or the absence of one, because, you know, there's just this, this privilege, this financial privilege passed on generation to generation. So, yeah, I'm not sure if you have any thoughts about that, but 
Yeah, well, I've actually got, I mean, I've, I keep bringing up the example of inheritance because it's what, what I wrote my first book on, so I'm a little bit preoccupied with that. Mm. Inheritance tax, you might argue, is pro-capitalist. It's, it's the practice of inheritance, or at mm. least the unequal distribution of inheritance. Mm. That would be anti-capitalist. If everyone mm. got a bit of inheritance and everyone got the same, mm. it might be good. Mm. Um, but yeah, we're in a society where all the taxes are on economic. I mean, income tax and, and GST or consumption tax, those are taxes, or those are restrictions on markets. Okay, if you want to pay someone to work for you, 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 a bunch of that money is going to get taken in income tax. So you might think if you're in favor of markets or market freedoms, you might think tax the things that are outside the market, like intergenerational wealth transfers or, or just things like land, right? Um, mm. Tax valuable property and so on, which we do to a, to a degree, but not very much. Mm. And there are all sorts of technical reasons why that's just hard to do. Right? I mean, governments tax income and consumption because it's easy, because there's already a financial number on it, and, and it's easy to keep track of what's going on and take money each time. But yes, the defense of capitalism leaves room for um, the abolition. I mean, there are some people who've argued that, look, if you're a capitalist society shouldn't have inheritance. Mm. I mean, in fact, the old dead white guys, the, Adam Smith and John Stuart Mill, they were very ambivalent about inheritance. John Stuart Mill argued that, look, there really shouldn't be, there really shouldn't be uh, much inheritance. And the case for taxing it is actually a lot, ethically, the case for taxing it is a lot easier to make than the taxing of income, even though we're, we're completely used, accustomed to taxing income in, in, in countries like Australia and, and elsewhere. So yes, now the point about private education is, um, closely connected right with with you know how much wealth is in your family background um it's a little bit more complicated because you know there might be might for example there might be um, australia's a migrant society i mean that's on pause at the moment because of the pandemic but you know one, one view that you might have is that if a migrant society comes down to australia doesn't have much wealth and you know doesn't have a property in in a melbourne or, or whatever they might think that well look if we Go, do the hard yards to put our kids through private school that's sort of allowing our kids to catch up with the kids who are going to inherit mm -hmm. so it, there's actually a bit of complexity there it's not mm -hmm. easy to sort it out mm -hmm. and what you suggested earlier that private education sort of compounds privilege is, is actually true to an extent but it's not quite as simple as something mm -hmm. like inheritance where it is just wealth being passed down there's, yeah 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 um, apart from anything else education actually has an output it, it, it leads to the production of educated people mm -hmm. who can do stuff um, I'm a state school educated person like you, so I don't like to put too much weight on the idea that private school people are more productive. But nonetheless, there's there's something different about educating people than just passing wealth down. Passing wealth down doesn't doesn't land doesn't have an output just as such, right? Mm. Yeah, yeah, and um, yeah. I think my the thing that I draw issue with is just the idea of. Um, and this often, this is actually, well, I mean, in law school, this has actually been mostly contradicted by the idea of, um, a large inheritance encouraging complacency or encouraging, um, a reluctance to kind of contribute to society. Because, you know, my experience with people in law school was that they were extremely conscientious and extremely intelligent, you know, the, uh, and, you know, a lot of them were very passionate about social justice and things that I was very interested in. Um, but I guess, you know, the thing that was alarming for me was the humongous overrepresentation of private school educated students in places like law school. Um, and I imagine that I'm not sure what the numbers are at the University of Melbourne, but I imagine, you know, it's uh, over there is an overrepresentation of 
privately educated students and an underrepresentation of state public school education educated students um and yeah uh i yeah i i don't really um i i still don't really know uh how to think about um kind of and maybe this is where this would be a good time to turn to some some ethical some of the ethical questions of capitalism um but yeah i guess i trying to trying to trace causal relationships between facets of or like you know parts of society and outcomes is pretty is very difficult so to say that you know if you've if you come from uh yeah i guess it's hard to it's hard to know what are the things which allow someone to be privileged i guess money is one of them um but yeah um i guess to try and turn this into a question um I mean, you cover you cover a range of things in your book, from automation to leisure time, um, to you know, kind of uh, anarchical socialist societies. Um, so yeah, I guess like where where do you think would be a convenient place to begin with asking, you know, one with asking an ethical question about capitalism? I guess we've we've kind of already spoken about um you know inheritance tax but you know where what 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 are you thinking about at the moment right well um one one useful question to ask very generally is what what's and this this in a way the education question is an instance of this more general question which is what what sort of things should be left to the market and what sort of things either either shouldn't be left to the market or, or should be you know really carefully controlled when it comes to what role markets might have in, in, in producing and, di- and distributing them. And one useful distinction here <clears throat> is between, well, goods that are, that are positional um, and, well, and, and goods that are non-positional. Now, a positional good is a good where the benefit it, get, it gets for you is largely, or, or if not entirely, a matter of the position you get in a ranking of people who've got some share of the good, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, with respect, with reference to examples, something like food is not a positional good because the quality of the food in your fridge is independent of what's in other people's fridges, right? Other people might have better or worse food in their fridges. You could rank the food in people's fridges, but um, you know, if someone else, someone else's food gets worse or better, yours stays the same. That's the idea. Whereas education, or at least educational grades, which is a large part of education, how how good your ATAR is, or, or how good your degree classification, or, or whatever it might be. Is, is really just a matter of where it sits in the ranking, okay? Now, one view is that markets are work best when they're producing non-positional goods because things like food, you want to get the supply up, all right? And, and markets will help you do that. We could go into the details, but mar- markets will, will get that done um, and they'll, you know, respond to people's different preferences and everyone, you know, if you like orange juice, you can get more orange juice for less money and if I like bread, or I can get that. But when markets supply positional goods, you get a kind of war of all against all, right? You get what we call competitive consumption. Um, and this is, this is partly true for education. It's also true, true arguably for things like luxury goods, uh, markets in, in political influence or de facto markets when, you know, um, lobby groups or whatnot uh, want to donate money to, um, to political campaigns. Mm. That, that's a positional good. And what unites these positional goods is you cannot increase the overall supply. Okay, mm. not everyone can be better than average. Not everyone can have 
better. Not everyone can have the top high school grades. Not everyone can have the most political influence. Not everyone can have the limited edition whiskey that you used to see in the duty free of the airport or what have you. And so, but that doesn't bother the market or the people supplying the good. That doesn't stop them because they can just keep raising the price. Mm. Okay. That's what I mean by the, the war of all against all between consumers. All the consumers are spending more, all the parents, or not all of them, but a, a large group of parents are, are trying to outspend each other. Okay. And that's, that's not good. That's, on the one hand, that's probably wasteful. Um, I mean, that's just money getting spent on things where, you know, there's, there's, there's little added value. Um, it's also might maybe unfair uh, because if it, it means that the, the very, in the end, the sort of arms race, the, there are winners in the end and it's the people who can outspend everyone. You know, it's the people who can keep spending once everyone else has dropped out. Um, and it's in the case of education, it's also pretty hard on the kids. I mean, on the one hand, a private education can give you advantages. But if you look at countries where the arms race has really got out of control, countries like Japan and South Korea, what you've actually got is, is kids, kids at a very young age working, you know, 12 or 15 hour days just, mm. just to get grades on each other. And while on the one hand that might have good effects on, on, you know, what Korean and Japanese kids know at the end of education, it also puts a big burden on them. So one general question is that markets are great for producing some goods, uh, but not for other goods, and that, that's that that comes up in the textbook a fair a fair bit. Hmm. Yeah. Right. Um. I think the yeah the idea. Uh. I I guess that that's a very helpful binary: positional versus non-positional. Um. And yeah, I think well, both of us are uh, attached to you know a big flagship tertiary institution which brands itself as the best in the country at every opportunity it can get um uh and yeah i guess i um i feel as though well you know i was able to get into the university um without working 12 hour days from the age of five um and you know really uh if i'm being totally honest it was probably only the final two years of high school where i actually you know, be, became, um, more focused, um, and, and, you know, kind of committed to my studies. Um, and one thing that I've been thinking about a lot recently, and I actually made, uh, two podcast episodes on this is the idea of leisure time. Um, and you didn't explicitly mention this, um, but, you know, you said that the impact of, you know, five-year-old well, from the age of five, having to work 12, uh, study 12 hours a day just to get a spot in a Bachelor of Arts, um, I guess a consequence of that is that you have less time to be creative or less time to do, um, you know, things that aren't, th you know, that things that aren't under instruction from others. You know, you have time to kind of uh, try and make sense of the world by yourself or whatever. Um, I guess one person who spoke about this was Bertrand Russell. Um, his in praise of idleness, you know, is in praise of idleness. Um, I guess he's a strong advocate for uh, a society which doesn't, you know, require us to work for the majority of the day for whatever it is, um, but instead, you know, work less, have other things kind of securing... Uh, our basic needs maybe i don't know whether he would be in support of a universe a universal basic income maybe um but yeah i guess uh one one thing that i worry about when i think about capitalism is um 
the constant urge or the constant pressure to be productive um, and to to be positioned in a system where uh, you are competing for positional things like better grades, um, like better jobs, um, like, I don't know, living in a nicer neighborhood or something. Um, there are There's this constant kind of pressure to be, you know, outperforming yourself and outperforming others. Um, so, yeah, I guess... I wondered, I wondered whether you, yeah, what, what you thought about this? Um. Yeah, lo- loads to say about this, right? Um, so leisure time, I mean, we could talk at some length about the, the reasons why we want to have it mm. and, and get to that, but perhaps we'll talk first about why, why we don't, well, some of us do have it, but mm. why, why does it not just happen a bit more easily? Um, because <clears throat> this raises an interesting question about labor markets, right? Now, uh, the, the norm or the norm for some time was that you worked five days a week. Well, if you were a man, you worked five days a week in the labor market. And then there was the weekend. And these norms, there's a, there's a big background question here about what kind of effect the social norms have before things like laws and policy have an effect. And often the effect of social norms is, is discounted. But anyway, for a long time, things like religious norms, you know, meant that you, you didn't work on, on, on Sundays, things like that. And those, those norms sort of ebbed away a little bit, or at least have ebbed away in um, countries like Australia, I, I dare say. And so it looks like the labour market employers are just going to, you know, in order to protect leisure time, we rely on, on employment law, basically. We, we rely on the idea that an employer has to give you so many days off per, per year. Um, and then that's how you get your leisure time. Um, you know, or the employer can't make you work on Sunday and that, that kind of thing. Now, there are, two, there are at least two forces that work against that. One is the tendency for employment law does not cover all kinds of work. And this is actually being really brought into light by the pandemic, right? If you're a casual worker and you don't have these sort of leave entitlements, you just don't get the time off. And in the context of the pandemic is that you you don't get the sick leave. You you don't get to have time off when you're infectious and we're really going to have to do something. Well, we are doing something about that, but we're really going to have to get onto that. That's one force. Another force which actually affects employed workers is that it's, it's harder to leave the work in the office now for some jobs. I mean, one um, in, in, in the class, one example I give is, you know, that if you're a tram driver, you just you can't take your work home with you, right? I mean, you just physically can't get the tram home, and even if you could, you wouldn't be working on it. But You need a big, really big house. <laughs> yeah, yeah. well, there'd be no one wanting to get on the tram. Just Anyway, you, the point's quite intuitive, right? If you've got hard physical capital and you work on that, not just trams, factories, and so on. Um, you, you really do get if, if if the employment law gives you time off, it really is time off. Um, and then there's quote unquote white collar jobs, right? Where a lot of the work is really about being logged onto the internet. Um, my job's like this, right? I've always got work in my inbox that I can be doing. So there's a sense in which my work follows me home, follows me around on my smartphone. And you know, one view about leisure time is actually you can have all the employment law you like, but it's actually quite hard to enforce. If the work is, if the capital and the labour, if you like, are not are not as separable as they are in these more twentieth uh, century kind of jobs like like tram driver, um, so those are two forces that work against leisure time. And and one of the challenges, if we want to have leisure time, one of the challenges is is how well, how do we make sure that people actually get it? Mm. Um, and <clears throat> it's worth saying something here about why we might want it. Right, to get onto the question of why it's good. I mean, you mentioned that people like Bertrand Russell. Also, there's a chapter in Mill's Principles on the stationary state when he says, look, one day we'll get to a stage where we've produced enough stuff and we don't have to work. 
Uh, he thought that's what capitalism would do. It would get the supply of stuff up to such a level that work could just sort of be less urgent. Um, that Things haven't turned out that way, at least not yet. But he thought that, yeah, time off is important for self-development. It's, it's when, particularly if you work in a, in a very kind of, you know, monotonous, physically difficult factory job, for example, or down a coal mine, leisure time is really important. I mean, if you've got a white collar job like mine, you can have some creativity in your work. You can you know, take the odd break here and there. You, you do stimulating things as part of your job. Um, but for some people, leisure time is the only, only time in which they'll get that, which raises an interesting question about, you know, should some professions just have more leisure time? Right. Should, there, should, I, should a white-collar job in which there's creativity be subject to perhaps less paid leave on grounds that the job itself gives you some of the benefits of the paid leave? Mm. Not, not saying there's an easy answer to that question, but it's, it's a good question, I think. Um, but although, that, although all of that is defensible, leisure time <clears throat> in some ways is a misnomer because it's also the time when you go and look after your sick grandparents. Right? And there's a whole load of, un, as you know, there's a whole load of quote-unquote unpaid work in the economy that people do in their quote-unquote leisure time, or, or, or anyway, people do when they're not participating in the labour market. And so there's also a debate in philosophy about how, how do we recognise you know, what, what we might call discretionary time, which is time when you've actually got real freedom to do what you want mm. rather than just at work. So there's, there's, a, there's an interesting set of questions about why we don't have perhaps as much time off work as, as we ought to have. And then there are questions about, well, when we say time off work, how much of that is really leisure? Um, and and what, what are we really shooting for here? What, what are we aiming for? And depending on how we answer these questions, we might think that, look, paid leave in time, if, if you've got to look after sick family members and your work follows you around in the smartphone anyway, employment law and, and you know, mandated leisure time might not do as much for you as free childcare or something like that. Um, so there are interesting debates about what kind of policy solves what kind of problem here. Um, capitalism, just to link this back to capitalism, there's a, there's a real sense in which labour markets, the early defenders of capitalism thought that labour markets were going to be this sort of emancipatory thing, right? that they were going to, a feudal history, most people are peasants, they have no, no freedom, no labour market freedom, they can't even move around the country if they want to change jobs. Um, the thought in Adam Smith was that, oh, an urbanised culture where people have got market freedoms it's just going to be loads better because people are going to be able to choose between loads of different jobs. Hasn't really turned out that way because people like Smith underestimated the kind of power that employers still have over workers in, in, in most jobs. And also just the difficulties of changing jobs. I mean, there might be a lot of jobs in a town. It doesn't mean it's easy to chop and change. But there's all sorts of costs with changing jobs. You, know, you have to change all, all kinds of elements of your lifestyle, your commute, maybe what uniform you've got to buy, etc., etc. So... The, the original this, the labor markets and leisure are, in, are an interesting sort of segue into the question of, well, the old dead white guys who thought capitalism was going to be this great thing, at least the very early ones, people like Adam Smith, people who were around before the Industrial Revolution, underestimated, and you know, to be fair, weren't in a position to see the way in which employment in hierarchical firms actually is a, might be a little bit like feudalism insofar as the boss or, or the, you know, the, the, the employer is a little bit like, I mean, this is exaggerating a bit, it's not as bad as being a peasant to an aristocrat, but there are some, there's a residue, right? There's a, a remainder whereby workers don't have the kind of freedom that one might hope they would have had, you know, before the, when you're looking at all this before the Industrial Revolution. And so the big picture here is well, how do we 
if we if we want to remain open to the idea that capitalism and markets are a good thing, we've got a lot of work to do to figure out how employment law can you know, correct for some of these tendencies. Mm. And perhaps yeah. other aspects of law. Mm. This is where I learn from students, right? I'll say yeah. to students, tell me about your jobs. And you'll you'll have students who say, Oh yeah, I work I work in a restaurant on Flinders Lane, you know, fancy place. And the employers really do not play by the rule. I mean, even having the having the right rules is is not sufficient. And we've seen this you mentioned in one of our emails, the, the wage theft scandal um attaching to well most recently to, to universities like ours um you can have employment law right but it's actually really hard to enforce mm. and, and actually we rely on basically workers to do the enforcement themselves mm. by taking their employers to court mm. which is actually quite difficult to do um or at least difficult to do without the right kind of union who can you know um bring bring the sort of power to bear to get that done um so yes, this is this is one area where I actually learn from the, learning about what it's lo- how labour markets are going. Is you have to talk to the people in the trenches. If, if <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, yeah, I I couldn't help but think of um, and I guess I think this is uh one I think one one of the main critiques people have of capitalism is inspired by uh what makes the news. And often what makes the news about capitalism are these humongous kind of, you know, codified um, systemic abuses of power and authority by big corporations. And, you know, the University of Melbourne, Amazon, Nike, Um, you know, Amazon and Nike pay their employers next to nothing, especially, you know, Jeff Bezos is one of the most resented individuals probably in the world. Um, and yeah, I guess, um, yeah, you know, as you were saying, those old dead white dudes, when they were thinking about, you know, the emancipatory potential of markets and of, um, yeah, of markets where, you know, individuals can retrain and upskill and, you know, move in different directions and pursue their interest by choosing, um, you know, a career which suits their skills and, and their interests. Um, yeah, it doesn't really seem, at least today, it, it, that, that, is, that is a real challenge. Um, I guess there are very few people who I hear reporting that they have ended up in a career which, you know, matches their hobbies and interests. Um, often, it se- it, often it seems like it's philosophers um, who are the only people, <laughs> seriously, who are the only people who kind of say, you know, this is great. Like I, I, you know, I, I care about this stuff and I get paid to write about it. But then, you know, you hear about the kind of budding philosophers, um, who are being paid for three minutes work to mark an essay. Um, not just philosophers, right. Um, academics in across a lot of disciplines. Um, yeah. but yeah, that's, this is all excellent stuff. Um, so yes, what, what's in the news cycle, a lot of reference to big corporations and, and their misbehavior. Now here, I want to just um, push back a little bit against the kind of the vibe of the news cycle, right? Which is generally speaking, very, you know, often very, very good reporting, exposing specific and quite egregious injustices and which wouldn't get noticed if, if not for these news, if not for these often just individual journalists. So they do a great service. And then there's a sort of diagnostic conclusion about this being the tip of the iceberg of some kind of capitalist sort of Leviathan, behemoth, sea monster type, type thing, right? And that's where things get a little bit tricky um, because there's the economic status quo, 
right? There's the way things are, which we should care about. And, and there's whether the status quo is really capitalist. Now, this may sound like a sort of scholastic, you know, ivory tower point, but the important thing is to notice that a lot of these problems, partly they stem from just that the rules are far, the rules are in some cases okay, they're just hard to enforce, like we talked about. Um, but in part, they come about because of lack of competition. Okay, so you've talked about um, corporations that have large market share. I mean, we can argue whether a university is really a corporation, but they do have pretty big markets. There's not many of them around, at least in Australia. You talked about Amazon. You, you could talk about lots of other industries in which you've got these big hitters. Now, what happens, and again, this is something that wasn't anticipated by the sort of pre-industrial optimists like Smith. What happens is when you've got a relatively small number of employers, the employers don't have to compete as hard for the workers as the workers have to compete with each other. And this is actually quite a familiar point. Um, and, you know, looms large in, in, in the, we haven't talked about Karl Marx yet, but this is one of the big, you know, the big points. And, but a big enduring point, a big enduring feature of labor markets is workers, particularly lower skilled workers, they've got really high exit costs. Okay. I mean, even skilled work, if I say to the university of Melbourne, you know, I've had it with you, I'm off. The costs to me are much bigger than the cost to the university because I lose, you know, my whole employment. They only lose a small fraction of the workforce that they need to get to get their income coming in. Um, so what you've got is you've got this sort of mismatch of exit costs, which is a competitive advantage for the employers. So you can say that, look, actually, if capitalism is about taking this competition side of things really seriously, We've, we've got, we're more towards feudalism insofar as we've got this big power imbalance, which is, yeah, of course, it's not as bad as, you know, medieval Europe where the aristocrat could just conscript you. You've got these Shakespeare plays like Henry V where, you know, England's invading France. And if you're interested in political economy, what hits you is, why are all these like, peasants fighting a war for this king? Like, what's going on? Um, I mean, that's a bit of a tangent, but look, it's not as bad as that. But there is this power imbalance that's brought about by the, the lack of alternative options for workers. Um, and if you want to have, if you want to correct these injustices and either, either make the existing laws more enforceable or just make it the case that the competitive imbalance is less there, you might argue that that's actually trying to get markets to do what, what the, make, that's, that's trying to make markets more competitive, right? And you don't need to sort of quote unquote go socialist and have the state nationalize things, right? Or even redistribute a whole load of wealth to mm. get that. You could try and defend all these. What I'm saying is you could defend a whole load of reforms in the name of capitalism, right? Mm -hmm. Now, we might disagree about the details. And there are important questions about whether you do this through promoting unions, whether you do it through changing employment law. You mentioned basic income, which is well worth talking about as a, as a sort of different approach. So there's always internal questions to how you do this. And this is what means we can just sort of talk till the cows come home. Mm -hmm. The point I just wanted to register is that the status quo, full of injustices, there is a way of diagnosing and arguing for reform with respect to these injustices that is, can, can be um, presented as a version of capitalism or indeed getting away from feudalism. Mm, yeah, right. And I guess what, what's, um, what, is, what I find really interesting about what you've just said is that, um, yeah, and I guess this is kind of, this has been something that has been growing, this, this sentiment that I've been feeling um, is expanding in in my mind over the past as I'm kind of getting older is that a lot of the views that I held about the way society was and a lot of the views I had about capitalism came from you know um, came from an idea of capitalism as being quasi feudal and as being you know this kind of um, 
top-down leadership, uh, top-down structure where you have these big, powerful conglomerate bodies, um, or you know, big corporations or big institutions uh, that have have a particular relationship with their employees, where you know the the well-being of the employee when it's jeopardized has can have a negligible impact or a non-existent impact on the well-being of the university or of the institution or the corporation. So, yeah, I guess like what you said before about, you know, if you say like, you know, whatever, Melbourne Uni, like, you know, uh, like I'm sick of this, I'm leaving. Um, yeah, I guess that's, that, that'd be, you know, that'd be very unfortunate for, for anyone because for, especially for, I guess, academics, because it seems like there isn't a whole lot of, there aren't a whole lot of jobs going around for academics. Um, and, you know, recently the Morrison government, it hasn't passed through the Senate yet, but, you know, they announced that there are going to be fee hikes for, you know, the humanities degree. So who knows what that's going to do um, for enrollment? Yeah, yeah. The fee hike is socialism, by the way. Mm. Um, the, the fee hike is the government thinking it can plan what everything should cost. Um, so the sort of descendants of Adam Smith, people like uh, Friedrich Hayek, who, who were, you know, trying to carry on the sort of pro market agenda they argued that look government shouldn't fix prices for things because government doesn't really know what's going on now there are going to be some exceptions to that but frankly um the government doesn't doesn't really know doesn't really know how to control the labor market to such an extent that it should be deciding which you know what what portion of students do do what subject now of course mm. we we do need a certain number of doctors lawyers etc but we don't it, setting prices is not it, we, the government is not in a position to know enough to, to set prices um, there's also, there's also a question about what actually happens at university, whether you really, to some extent, you learn skills, but to some, you know, what, what do employers get from, you know, a, a philosophy graduate, a philosophy graduate of a high classification, employers know things like, look, you, you get stuff done, you show up on time, you're good at working without supervision. None of that's got very much to do with what Plato or Adam Smith said. You know, a lot of what you do by going through university is demonstrate skills that you, either you already have or which you cultivated yourself, mm. right? Through the, the exercise of, of, of performing academic work is how you did that, but it's not as if you, someone like you goes, takes my class and is a better option for an employer because of what I told them. Mm. I mean, that's actually kind of not... Universities don't like pushing this line because it makes them look... Le- there's a fear that it makes them look less significant than they actually are, but I think it, sh- it should be endorsed. I mean, universities are an environment in which students can signal to employers that they have certain skills. Some of those skills they get from the uni, like performing surgery, but some of them are just ones they cultivated through their own efforts, mm. and the university gave them a kind of structure for that. Mm. But if you take that seriously, actually it does, it does show that it doesn't matter so much what degree program you take, right? You can, you can send those signals regardless of whether you study medicine or philosophy or whatever. And so that further goes against the, the fee hike thing. Mm. Yeah, right. The government knows what should cost what. I'm sort of getting a bit, a bit on a on a tangent now. Um, no, no, no. This is very interesting territory. Yeah, um, yeah. And and in fact, when I when I teach this class, I'm just going to keep using this example as an example of price fixing by a government that purports to be about markets, but actually mm-hmm. trying to plan the economy in an area where it doesn't know what really really what it's doing. And and I think all I'd add is that universities are a little bit complicit because they don't really want to push this line of it's you cultivating your skills yourself when you take you know my class sure you learn stuff about political economy but that's not what the employer really wants it wants 
to know that you're the kind of person who can get stuff done um, and that you can sort of do do well in a, in a in an environment of having deadlines and tasks. It doesn't care too much whether whether you've read the latest paper on basic income. Yeah, yeah, but that that's such a strange like it's such a strange line for the university to be pushing because I don't know of at least in in the arts in the arts faculty. Um, and of my friends who have done an arts degree, I don't know of any of them who, you know, after they've graduated have said, oh, you know, like, um, it was, it was, it was all the professors who made this experience for me. Like, I, I, I mean, I don't think I've ever heard anyone say that. Sure. There are like, there are inspiring professors and there are good professors and good tutors and whatever, but yeah, ultimately I totally agree with you. Um, the university experience is one of kind of self-cultivation and self-development among others. And it's kind of, you know, a shared, a shared journey of self-cultivation and helping others and, and whatever. Um, yeah. And I guess I wonder, I wonder why, sorry. You wonder why universities, well, here's a short answer. The university is a fragmented agent to put it, you know, sort of grandiosely. What you've got is departments. And departments have to are in a position of having to say why you should take a philosophy degree rather than a history degree rather than a medicine degree. And no, departments aren't going to say things like, oh, it doesn't really matter, right? Because whatever you take, you'll, you'll cultivate these, as long as, you take, as long as you take it seriously, you will cultivate these skills, you will send a signal to employers that you're the sort of person who gets stuff done. So just take whatever you're interested in, mm. which is kind of nice if we could all just say that to students, right? But departments are put in a position of having to compete for enrolments and, and, and so on, um, which goes against this, might have some good effects, right? But it goes against this, this language of, oh, look, you, you will get skills that you can communicate to employers through your sort of degree classification and so on, independently of what the subject matter is, because the employer doesn't care so much about the subject matter as it does about your, you know, whether, whether you're an adult who can work without supervision and so on. But yeah, in, when departments compete with each other, that's not an effective way for them to do it. So in, in a way, it's because the university seldom, the university is not the only sort of voice, it's, it's the sort of constituent parts. Mm, that's very interesting. Um, yeah, so I guess what you said before, you know, the government trying to regulate the prices of, you know, trying to put a value on degrees or something to kind of nudge the economy in a particular direction and that being, you know, a socialist uh, practice. Um, and then on the other hand, you have you know, the university responding to that with this, you know, this market competition based, you know, practice where they're trying to beat each other to get the number of the highest number of enrollments. So about markets work best when you can actually increase the supply, but departments competing for students who have already enrolled in, this is a positional competition, right? It's, it's like the, it's like the competition for educational credentials. It's, what winners win, losers lose type thing. It's not like competition among coffee shops where you just get more coffee at lower prices and hopefully better coffee. Um, if, if, if I can, I'll just rewind a little bit to what, mm. what you said about sort of feudalizing tendencies of, 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 of capitalism. Um, I think any realistic defense of capitalism and, and the view that look, what we want is some balance of freedom and competition has to recognize that there'll be strong tendencies away from that towards monopoly, right? So one view is that feudalism is the really stable system. <laughs> After all, it was around for centuries, right? Uh, and it, it took a lot to, to dislodge it, and there's ongoing disagreement about what really, what really started the Industrial Revolution and so on. But yeah, even after, 
even after you've got um, something like a capitalist system in place, it might revert. It, it, the signs are that it will revert or the labor market will revert to these sort of feudalistic tendencies, monopoly and so on. It does depend a bit on the industry. So you may, you know, academics or airline pilots um, can't really work freelance. Like, there are some goods and services that just lend themselves to large firms. And there's a branch of economics, the theory of the firm, that tries to explain some of that. Um, uh, but then there are things like coffee shops where actually you do just get a lot of small entities. Um, so this is not universal, right? It, it's in some industries more than others. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, but yeah, it does show that if you actually, it's no good just saying, oh, we like capitalism because if we do like it, we like it because it's this sort of balance of, you know, freedom and sort of competition and fairness. Um, again, this is why it's misleading to talk about free markets because um, you've actually got to work pretty hard when it comes to policy design, legal design, to maintain those conditions. And so mm. a, a government that's promoting capitalism won't be a kind of laissez-faire, hands-off, let the market do its thing. Um, at least that's what we argue in the book. Mm. Mm. And right. it's, what argue, it's what others argue as well. Really, ever since John Stuart Mill wrote that long chapter that I mentioned earlier. Right, right. Um, and do you... Okay, so I guess one, th one other thing that I've been thinking about for for a while as well that um seems relevant here is the question of our the question of human motivation um i guess adam smith had the idea of the invisible hand as being you know um we will you know we're guided towards uh you know we want to secure we, we want things and we're guided towards those things by this invisible hand and, you know, the a compelling structure or a, a helpful structure is to have an employer or, a, you know, a creator who makes things and then a consumer. And the, consu the creator has to create in order to have an income and the consumer consumes to be happy and then they also have to create. And so there's this kind of invisible hand guiding everyone um, around. That's probably the worst rendition of... Um, the invisible invisible hand that you've ever heard, but you know, no, it's not. No, it's not, and I'll, I'll tell you why. Um, the invisible hand is inherently tricky. Okay, one reason it's tricky is it only gets mentioned a couple of times in Smith's writings. Okay, right. it's not clear that he was really wanting to use it to do that much work. It's it's the sort of thing that's wheeled out very often, often by a sort of apologist for quote unquote free markets as as a way of um, promoting the view that oh, no one knows what's going on, so you, you just can't regulate. Um, so it's tricky just in, in that the textual source of it is actually quite thin. Um, maybe some Smith scholars don't want to say that, but that, that's, that, that would be my suggestion. That is, you know, in, in very large texts from Smith, hundreds of pages, this thing comes up a couple of times. Hmm. Well, let's maybe pay attention to the other bits of text as well. Um, so that's one tricky thing. Another tricky thing is it's a metaphor. Like, I mean, in philosophy, we like things to be true or false, okay? Metaphors are never true, right? And however, however nice they might be or helpful in some ways, there is no hand invisible or otherwise. So in a way, we should try and stop talking about invisible hands if we're trying to explain actual stuff. And I mentioned earlier Friedrich Hayek, who's a sort of controversial figure, but one of the, I think, the more valuable contributions he made was that, well, we can sort of demetaphorize some of this stuff by talking about spontaneous order, which is, sounds metaphorical, but actually there's the idea that, look, there is order to what's going on, but no one is in a, no one is in a position to really control it. No one really invented it. And, and no one can know everything at once. This goes back to the thing I said earlier about, you know, when it's political economy, everyone knows something, including the students, but no one knows everything. Mm. And so the idea here is that <clears throat> this is still a defensive market order, 
but it's the idea that look um freedom's valuable because that way everyone can use the knowledge that they do have and the price system can send the information around the economy and that's that's better than having a centralized government try and run everything now there are going to be exceptions to that where there are some goods and services where the prices don't work very well positional goods might be one of them we talk about that in the book but i think the way to make the invisible hand a bit more tractable is just to say look there there are some order governed activities like markets where you know the invisibility thing is just that you can't see the whole picture at once and you need to take that seriously when you try and improve things um markets are you know, one analogy is with natural languages right clearly they are order they are orders they are rule governed you have to learn a language but no one invented it and no one could really make it better by change, you know you, you can't really take control of these things they, mm. they evolve it's a process of evolution and you know markets are not quite like languages that we talk about this at length in the book there are various complications to that analogy but i think the, the lesson of the invisible what you can recover from the invisible hand thing is just that systems can be complicated but that doesn't mean the complexity is graspable by one person or that it came from one person's idea. And this is going to be even more controversial, but there's a little bit of a parallel here between these sort of arguments from design that you get um, uh, in philosophy of religion. Like, oh, the world is a really complicated place, so there must be a God who put it together. Mm-hmm. Not clear that, that follows. Similarly, the market's really complicated and language is pretty complicated. But it doesn't mean that someone did invent them or that we should want someone to take full control. Mm. And I think that, that, that is sort of the way of, of getting at the lesson of the invisible hand. And, and that's close to also the, the overall agenda in, in Smith's work. You know, yeah. Part, you know, all, the, all the words he wrote apart from that phrase. In- <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, right. Okay, well, yeah, that actually um, makes it much more clear for me. Uh, as to what Smith was talking about, because yeah, I actually, I don't think I've read much Smith. I think I've, I was kind of interested a few years ago in the idea or the, well, the, it's, me- the metaphor, but it's a huge text. I mean, it's, mm. it's sort of like me to work full time mm. reading it and for books like this, hopefully to get the main point across. And then, you know, if you want to go read more, you go read more, <clears throat> but you know, time is scarce. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I guess the, the, the thing that kind of, piqued my interest um uh, about you know the the spontaneous order or the invisible hand metaphor was um do either of those or do, is there is there anything that these political theorists are saying which can which share parallels or which are you know is there one that is most analogous to the human condition um and then, you know, I thought about, I thought about why I live and I guess, you know, I have, I have various, you know, I have an ethical code that I try and live by. Um, I have people who I care about. I have things that I'm interested in. I have things that I'm not interested in. And I kind of move between these things and I'm very appreciative of the ability to be flexible and to be you know, and to have leisure time. Like, I actually do think I have leisure time. And one thing that I didn't reply to was um, the kind of uh, omnipresence of, you know, uh, jobs today. Um, you know, as an academic, you know, do you, as a philosopher, do you ever stop thinking about, you know, do you, is, it, is it like, you know, is it ethical to stop thinking about this kind of stuff? Who knows? Um, uh, 
probably probably you know you're allowed to have a bit of a break but is that actually you know in practice is that what happens so yeah i guess i wondered um maybe this would be a convenient time to move on to or to kind of you know situate capitalism i guess we've spoken about feudalism not so much socialism but um yeah i guess what are your thoughts about okay so i'll i'll tell you my thoughts about the the human condition or you know basic basic thoughts about you know what it means to be so i think um you know i think there is i guess you know i kind of i really got into existentialism a few years ago and you know the existential philosophers talk a lot about freedom individual freedom um the ability to kind of you know imagine different horizons and you know commit to them and to kind of um try and shed the vast and heavy uh kind of world facts that you've been given by the society and culture and family that you're born into and then kind of try and piece it together yourself and figure out what's important for you so i guess i think that's important um but then i also think you know it's important to contribute to a society um and i guess that's where things like you know socialism capitalism feudalism come up because you can't just I mean, you could, you could just go and live in, you know, a cave or something and, you know, sit cross-legged and think a lot. Um, I've never really wanted to do that. Um, and so, yeah, I guess I, I don't really know, I don't really know what, I don't really know how to conceive of the ideal, uh, society. And I think, um, I'm just trying to remember, you actually broke down, you kind of had these two different ways of describing uh, you know, the the political economic project is one which tries to construct the ideal society. And then on the other hand, there is one which tries to work with the society that we have at the moment to try and, you know. Um, so, yeah, I guess, I don't know what, like, how do you feel about, how do you, like, what's your, what are your ideas about, you know, what it means to be human? And how does that match with your views about the political economy? Great. Well, it's not the answer is not going to be just about my views. It's going to be the views of some of the, um, well, some of the old dead white guys. Uh, <clears throat> but the human condition is is a real big part of this. Okay, and and you can actually reflect on the human condition in ways that lead to some quite interesting comparisons between capitalism and socialism. We'll leave feudalism out of it for the time being because it never even really tried to. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was it, at best it was uh, you know god put me in charge to do what i say or yeah. that's about as close spanish inquisition is it? um so people people in the sort of liberal tradition people like smith mill and, and so on they want to say that look humans are sort of in, inherently diverse creatures okay we go in different directions we want different stuff out of life that might be why we started trading with each other in the first place um, you know, Smith says you never saw dogs trading bones of each other. I mean, it's a bit of a silly example, but it's true. You never really do. Um, I know there are some sophisticated, you know, some animals that are social, right, and, and which do live together and, and do interact. So this is a bit of a false binary. But nonetheless, humans are at the real diverse end of that spectrum. Okay, we really do differ from each other. We want different stuff, and arguably, an, eco- an economy that is a system of exchange is going to is going to help with that if it goes in the right way. That was Smith's view. Um, <clears throat> Marx, Karl Marx, he thought this is why industrial capitalism is bad because it makes us all the same, right? It wants to put it, it insofar as it wants anything. It, it leads to a situation when we're all sat at a production line or down a coal mine doing the same thing as each other and it robs us of our creative potential. So Marx wanted to think about diversity in terms of the output of your creativity, 
which is a, a slight variation on this theme, but also sort of deeply attractive, I think, I think to many. And, and capitalism, or at least industrial market order, suppresses that, okay? Because you're just a cog in the machine, like as a metaphor. I think that the phrase was, you're a mere appendage of the machine, actual phrase in Marx. You know, and if you're at a production line in a factory, sure, you are creating something. And maybe that thing's valuable and it's cheaper because it's a factory. But if you get swapped with another worker, the output is the same. And that is what it means to rob you of your, of your creativity. Hmm. If you're an artisan carpenter or something making tables from scratch, which you might have been in the pre-industrial world, you put your own stamp on it. And that's why we want to be novelists, musicians, maybe philosophers. You, you, hear, you read a novel by an author you like, or you hear a piece of music by a, a composer or a band that you like, you can sort of sense that they've got their own style in it. You know, and and so this is this is really quite quite. It looks like a quite a deep fact about human beings, and and one that might may well be suppressed by market order with its tendencies towards specialization and and sort of sameness of input. And then it's worth mentioning. You talked about uh, social norms and traditions and your background. And I think you alluded to that. And and John Stuart Mill thought that this is actually another homogenizing force. Okay, you can talk about the homogenizing effect of the factory production line, but tradition does a fair bit of that as well. Hmm. And, and you will be socially punished for standing out in the wrong kind of way for reasons that don't have a whole lot to do with the labor market or, or any other market. Okay. If you've got the, the wrong kind of sexuality or even just the wrong kind of dress sense, you'll pay a price. If, if people can see this in you, okay, you might hide it. And, and, and that's a price in itself. Right. Um, and, and Mill thought that this is actually a real problem. And what we want is people to, to carry out what he called experiments in living where actually, you know, someone should go and sit in a cave for a year cross legged because they might, they might like it and they can tell people about it or they might hate it and then people can know not to do that mm. type thing. So um, all of these thinkers in political economy are deeply attuned to some kind of view, not quite the same view in each one, but some kind of view about the human condition and, and how the economy and our place in it stands to um, promote or suppress that. Okay, so although this is political economy, although it's a study of institutions and markets, it is driven in, in large part by, by reflecting also on what we are as people. So I'm, I'm very glad you brought that up. Capitalism, how does this bear on capitalism versus socialism? Well, this is where the disagreements start happening. Um, Mill thought that, look, socialism, the, the worry is that it's gonna have this homogenizing force in a different way. Um, there is room for disagreement about this, of course. Uh, I mean, Smith didn't really talk about socialism. He's too far back. It's all feudalism, really. Socialism is really a, a reaction to 19th century tendencies, like industrial, uh, industrial labor markets. You know, Marx thought that communism or socialism was going to have some emancipatory force, but one of the criticisms of Marx is he, didn't, he said a lot more about why capitalism wasn't that than, than how socialism would be that. And, you know, one, one considered view is just that we got things better in the 20th century when we recognized that, look, that justice requires something um, in between these sort of extreme positions of hyper-competitive systems. Hyper Maybe competition is fair, but it's still, as Mill emphasized, it's still going to keep you working the whole time and it's going to deprive you of other things. You know, the fact that it might be fair or not is kind of not everything when it comes mm. to the human condition. And, you know, socialism, well, there's, there's, there's the, the criticism that, that you find in people like Mill that it's still going to have this kind of homogenizing effect. Um, it's, it's still going to lead to some kind of status hierarchy in, insofar as, and this is where we get into arguments about whether the historical attempts at socialism are really the real deal which they sort of aren't, but they might still tell us enough that you're still going to get, you know, elites and, and um, power imbalances. And there's the Hayekian argument that, look, the, 
part of the problem with socialism is what the Liberal Party wants to do at the moment, which is that you know if you plan the economy, you're gonna you're gonna get things wrong and you're gonna get famines, and that's not good for the human condition either, regardless of our it just doesn't turn much on any particular conception of it. Um, so I think this is sort of quite poised. There are elements of capitalism, you know, construed as sort of competitive uh, balance between competition and freedom that, that do lend themselves to diversification and do create different opportunities for different people. But there's this worry about being sucked in, you know, um, like you get in mill, like we, we want to slow down and market participation can have this, it can work for some. Some people, we call them workaholics, but they're not necessarily having a bad time. Um, but, you know, that's not for everyone. And Marx was still kind of right that there were going to be these homogenized, there are going to be these unskilled jobs that they're not really going to go away. Um, there's going to be a fairly large sector of the population that's going to have to do them so long as they need to keep working to get money. That's where the basic income stuff comes up. Um, on the other hand, socialism might rob us of some of these, whatever its credentials, whatever its good side, <clears throat> it, might, it might rob us of some of these, you know, liberal elements of a market society in which people can find their own kind of place hmm. so in a way that's a roundabout way of saying it's it's up for it's up for grabs which is the best system when it comes to the human condition and i suppose in the book we lean lean towards capitalism as we understand it but there, there are these still these attractions of of you know what socialism might correct about about the market order so i don't hmm. have the final answer for you but hmm. that's sort of what i want to keep teaching the class yeah yeah right right um yeah. Okay. So I, on my social media in the lead up to this interview, I asked my followers to ask me to ask you some stuff. And often, um, I, th I think we've probably answered the main question that came through. Um, and I guess it's something that I hear a lot and that, you know, once upon a time I said a lot. Um, and that was that, um, you know, there is no way of conceiving of, capitalism as an ethical uh structure um and i guess i got variants of that question when i asked people uh, for questions for this interview um you know stuff along the lines of um you know how can we how can we reflect on the way how can we reflect on the hierarchical structure of society and think that you know cap we can keep going with capitalism or you know jeff bezos or you know something some kind of uh, a gesture towards some kind of big and true and real injustice in society. Um, but yeah, I guess from, from the grounds that we've covered, it seems like, um, uh, and I might cop a bit of flack for this, um, but it seems like the way that I once, and the, the way that I probably do still do conceive of capitalism is actually a conception about, I don't know, a particular instan instantiation of something that is a hybrid between capitalism, socialism, and feudalism. So I guess, you know, like, uh, we only need to reflect on, um, you know, the government's response to the pandemic to see that, you know, there are... Um, there are more draconian things that can happen. Um, you know, we're in stage four lockdown right now. Um, you know, look at what that's done to the market. Um, on the other hand, we have things like JobKeeper and JobSeeker and other kind of, you know, quasi-socialist uh, socialist practices where there is money, free, free money. Um, 
yeah and then yeah so i guess it's yeah i like i to be honest like it's pretty overwhelming it's a pretty overwhelming um conclusion to have reached um but i guess maybe it's not so helpful to actually have and maybe it's just maybe it's not realistic to actually have one structure or or a name for a system i guess maybe it's just worth accepting that like you know we live in a society that is uh beneficial in some ways and you know kind of pathological in other ways and we should embrace the beneficial parts like um you know medicare or uh you know parks and you know live music and whatever people's preferences are and this is where you know hedonism is quite you know an interesting philosophical concept to think about but on the other hand you know we should um you know despise and and chide and criticize um the more pathological things like you know australia's detention policy um or other things that you know people might find pathological but then you know we return to what you said which is that it's kind of like you know like who not everyone believes evidently not everyone believes that australia's relationship to asylum seekers is pathological um i imagine many people believe that it is logical and that it is you know a healthy approach to dealing with uh, people you know fleeing horrible circumstances so yeah um i don't know i guess i feel a bit uh feel a bit sad about the kind of ambiguity and the complexity of the political economy but maybe that's maybe that's just my naivety and maybe that's just you know part of the process of actually living in a society but i don't know like how do you feel about all of this do you feel like are you have you yeah like do you is it does it bother you that there's so much uncertainty and that we don't actually live in a truly capitalist or truly you know feudal or truly socialist society Short answer is is yes. Um, <clears throat> let me say a bit more about that. So as I said earlier, the socioeconomic status quo, it's kind of a hodgepodge. That's one of the points you want to defend in the book. And it's a hodgepodge because, well, partly an extension of the spontaneous order point. In spite of what we might be told, it's not a careful, it's not been carefully designed by the elite. The elite might have more influence than other citizens, and that's bad. But we are where we are, in, in, in part because of a bit of design, right? And there are laws and policies. But there are also the very strong effect of social norms, which in, in term is a hangover of a country's history in, in, in many cases, and certainly the case of Australia. And then there are these external shocks, as economists call them, like pandemics, which certainly aren't the product of, of design, least of all socioeconomic uh, legal design. And so these forces, they're going to keep, however much we, we might like one of the extreme points of the triangle. Right? So say for the example, we like capitalism. We think, yeah, we want to have a balance of market freedoms and competition. However much we might like that, well, we may or may not, but however much we do, there are going to be these other forces dragging us away. There are going to be things like pandemics and there are going to be things like the fact that certain norms exist in Australia. You gave the example of attitudes to asylum seekers or foreigners from certain parts of the world more than others. And you know, there's a long history of that. Um, most listeners will be roughly aware of that. Um, I'm, I'm an immigrant myself, so I'm, I'm still a fair bit ignorant about certain aspects of Australian uh, culture. But yeah, you, the lesson is you can't, you can't completely design 
a socio-economic system. You can just have views about what direction you want it to go in and other forces are going to drag it away from that and you might then mitigate that to some extent through the right kind of design. Um, you mentioned, and so to talk about some more specific cases, you talk about the welfare state and the job keeper, job seeker type thing as being a sort of quasi-socialist thing. Um, in one respect, it is because it's about the redistrib- it's about redistribution. Okay, so socialism is is, lo- is at least associated with central economic planning, like the deciding the prices, but also redistributing wealth and income. Um, that being said, although we are told that social welfare is a system of handouts, it's actually a system of insurance. Okay, you some people are constantly unemployed, right? But most people who are unemployed are pay have will or are paying taxes. And that is funding the, you know, funding their um, their their Centrelink payments or their job or their JobKeeper payments. And so, even how we describe these policies, I mean, really, the welfare state was supposed to be a bit like a a nationalised insurance scheme, okay? And and nationalised because insurance schemes work better the more people are participating in them. So, a bunch of homeowners pay into a scheme that pays out when one of them has their house struck by lightning. It'll do better when the, you know, the more homeowners are in that and the, more, the bigger the pool, right? Same with unemployment. I mean, if all workers pay into something, then when some are unemployed temporarily, the system will work better if, if more people paid in. And really, that's all the welfare state is. Like other insurance schemes, it has to carry this system of making people jump through hoops so that they're not trying to cheat the system, which in the case of house insurance, that's sort of okay. You just send someone around to look at the house and see if it really was a bolt of lightning rather than arson, Okay. But with labour markets, it's hard because you've actually, and this is the criticism that philosophers make, is that you've got to ask people, why can't you get a job? What's wrong with you? Are you stupid? Are you lazy? That kind of thing. And that is not nice. That is intrusive, demeaning, humiliating. Again, we could disagree about the, you know, the details. But um, once we sort of reflect on all this, is it really, how, how helpful is it to sort of label the welfare state as, as sort of quasi-socialist, quasi You might think it's a capitalist thing insofar as a bit of a cushion. When, you know, if we're, if we're trying to lower the exit cost of employment, we, we need something like this uh, so that the exit, exit costs are lowered so that the labour market is more competitive. So again, you can, you can, you know, a socialist and a capitalist can agree, if you like, at the world, that something like a welfare state is valuable, but they can also agree on its disadvantages. Mm. You know, like, kind of burden it places on people that you don't see so much for health insurance travel insurance and, and so on um so well, one thing i say about the status quo is that the, the bad things in it you, you can diagnose their badness often it's often overdetermined, right philosophers term for multiple views can you know, there's more than one sufficient way of, of of accounting for the badness of something yeah capitalism versus socialism might not settle the question of whether the basic income is superior to the welfare state right so there's there's pro-market people who think that basic income is better because it does the same job, right? It lowers the exit costs of work. It helps make labour markets more competitive, but it takes power away from government. It means the government can't... The government's basically spying on you, frankly, if you're unemployed. or It's, it's finding out things about your life that it won't get to find out about people who are, who are employed, or at least not without much more effort. You could argue that the government can find out what it wants if it tries hard enough about anyone, but... You know, there's, there's, there's reasons for preferring basic income quite compatible with being pro-market, but then there's a sort of redistributive argument as well, which is you know, something that a pro-socialist might, might find attractive and find attractive in ways that can in favour of basic income over a welfare state. So a lot, of, a lot of, you mentioned earlier that there's this distinction between, you know, what do we think is the ideal versus what would improve the worst aspects of the status quo. 
And if we take the second focus, which I think often, well, both focuses have their place, right? But if we take the second focus, you, you might find that deciding whether you're pro-capitalism or pro-socialist is not going to settle the question, or anyway, isn't the first thing you have to do to work out what needs to change. And that's mm. important. Mm. I, think, I think that gets at the spirit of your question is, you know, how, how does political economy, or how do these sort of theoretical decisions about what system is best, how do they translate into some of these sort of on-the-ground facts on the ground problems that we've got to deal with and, and, and sometimes sometimes it should be less tribal okay whether you think markets are good or you, or you think government is good there's or socialism is good there's there's ways in which we can agree on what needs to be changed mm. right and as okay okay so as as a philosophy student uh, in their final semester i have to make a decision <laughs> about you know, about what I do with my, what I do with my life, um, at the end of the year. Um, I guess one benefit of being a student, full-time student is that you get full-time, oh, you get, you know, um, you get some money from the government if you're not working, you know, uh, X amount of hours. Um, now, you know, that's something that I've been thinking about. Um, so I guess, you know, the things I've been thinking about are what are my interests? Um, what am I, uh, you know, what's going to allow me to live the kind of life that I want to live with a certain amount of free time or whatever. Um, so, yeah, I guess what what advice would you have for, uh, and this might be, you know, a pretty challenging and unfair and maybe unanswerable question, but what advice would you have for people um, when making, because a lot of my listeners are around my age, you know, early twen- early to mid-20s. Um, and I guess a lot of them haven't, or well, I imagine most of them, you know, there's some fact about my generation and maybe even your generation as well, um, you know, jumping between, I don't know, six different jobs or something or six different, you know, careers or industries in their life. So, um, I don't know, what advice would you have for people when choosing, uh, you know, when choosing what to do with their time because evidently what we do with our time has is going to have a tremendous impact on us but also on the way we you know on on the way the economy moves um you know if we're all uh hardcore consumers you know we're all going we're going to live in a very consumer heavy society if um you know we're all very you know conservative with our money and don't really spend anything um and don't buy stuff, you know, maybe the demand is going to be less on, you know, consumer goods. And so that industry is going to, you know, kind of, um, receive less attention. So I don't know, like what, okay. Well, how did you think about, like, how did you think about your, your life? <laughs> how I thought about it in hindsight might be the better, <laughs> might be the, the more helpful answer than what I thought at the time. Um, Here's one thing I sometimes say to people who are sort of getting into the age where they're sort of transitioning from full-time education to um, well, the labour market or, or whatever else they're going into. Early in life, when you work hard, a lot of it is about, well, economists distinguish between production costs and opportunity costs. Okay, Production costs are the cost of doing something. Opportunity costs are what you have to give up in order to get something else. And when you're young and you're in school and university, it's all, a lot of it's about production costs. It's about just putting in the, certainly going to school, it's, it's, you don't get any choice. You don't get any opportunity costs. Right? You just do what you're told. You, you do work. You get jumped through the hoops. Uni's are uh, kind of similar, okay? 
and the harder you, you know, the harder you work, the, the better your degree classification, etc. The the more sort of advantage you might be later on. But then life changes, and it becomes about what you give up. As soon as you come out of uni, and you have to start making choices and giving up things in order to have things. So in my case, I wanted to have a philosophy career, which I'm pleased to say I've, I've now got. Although you know, who knows what the pandemic is going to do to uh, you know uh, universities. But that aside, I, I I got I didn't get to where I've got by being more productive than other people. I got to where I've got because I was able to absorb, I was willing to absorb opportunity costs. And by that, I mean, principally, I moved countries twice. Okay. Now, <clears throat> often I'll have a student come and see me and they'll say, oh, you know, I want to be like you. I want to have an academic career, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, have you, have you considered maybe looking at the, you know, the master's program at ANU or something? And they'll say, oh, I don't want to go to Canberra. And, I was, and yeah, that, that's where you're seeing unwillingness to absorb an opportunity cost. So these students are willing to work, these students are willing to work hard right but it's, it becomes more about giving things up so you have to make choices about what you want to prioritize and what you want to sacrifice hmm. and that's a hard thing to do but that's what life gets like and that's you know when you decide whether to have children things like that that's the kind of choice you'll make well there are there are production costs as well in, in having and raising kids but there are opportunity costs and i think in life you need to you, one thing you need to get used to once you've come out of full-time education is is that kind of difference with hindsight that's a sort of technical way of putting it, right? But ho hopefully it's fairly intuitive. It's about not so much how hard you try, but what you're willing to give up so that you can more easily uh, achieve other things. That's a mm. sort of big picture point, isn't it, really? Um, I, I would repeat that thing I said earlier, right? Everyone's telling you, whether it's governments or universities, that look, you need to get these skills to do these jobs. But what employers, what we, we don't hear from employers so much on this. We're not hearing from employers about what they think higher education should be, and that's partly because employers are a diverse bunch, and you know they're not they're not like the government in, in that respect. But anecdotally, what employers say to me is that look, we don't want you to send us students who've got really good grades and all that, but who keep knocking on the boss's door saying, "Have I done this right?" Um, and you know, and students, very conscientious students, will often write to me saying, "You know, what does this essay question mean?" or what what are you expecting a b and c in, a, in an essay answer and, and the honest answer i can give them is that oh i just thought of this essay question in the shower like i haven't really and you know that that maybe that's that's a bit maybe i should be embarrassed to say that but it's still true like i haven't there's more than one way to skin a cat okay and when you're going through high school and all that that's discouraged because you've got to you know you've got to comply with all these targets and uh, so what employers anecdotally what employers seem to want is someone who can kind of make decisions uh, work without supervision and actually be an independent person and ideally that's what university allows you to signal but mm. nonetheless that there is a tendency because you've gone through high school and, you, and it, it, ironically this happens often i think to students who've had the more expensive educations right where the the teachers are more hands-on and they give them more attention and they get them over the line but they don't always prepare them for the to use a metaphor they don't always prepare them for the territory that comes afterwards so another bit of advice i'd say is that you know, keep in mind that People in life, as you go through life and, you, and you, you, know, you find employment and other kinds of responsibilities, people often want you to make the decisions so they don't have to. Another thing I say to students is I can't go to the vice chancellor and say, can you look through the subject guide to make sure I've done it right? Vice chancellor is going to say, I hired you so that you make this decision, not, not me. Right? <laughs> and if you really muck it up, maybe I'll notice and I'll say something. But there's that. That, that, that I think is something that you don't always see in the mentality of students even though students really want to work hard and, and are very conscientious, they're just not used to thinking that way. Yeah, right. And that's, that's actually like uh, remarkably relevant for me. Um, 
yeah, a, a lot of a lot of my decision making um, over the past few years has been about, um, uh, yeah, the, you know, doing things. Or the the question I think about is, you know, um, do I want to do this, having even though I know that it's going to have this particular impact on my life, um, and all that I guess, yeah, what what I'm realizing is that a lot of the time <laughs> it's pretty much impossible to know how something is going to impact you um, or how, how it's going to impact me. Like I'm actually looking at doing an honors program at ANU next year. Um, and I don't know what's driven me to consider living in Canberra. And last year I really didn't want to live, you know, if you'd asked me, I would have, um, you know, given you a whole bunch of expletives and followed by, you know, Canberra. Um, but yeah, like I, yeah, I think, I think that's really sound advice. Um, and it's very, actually very helpful for me. Um, and very re- and reassuring to know that, like, I guess kind of frightening and reassuring to know that even, yeah, even in your experience, you know, there is a lot of, um, you know, you're not kind of micromanaged. Um, and that's, you know, that's good and bad. Um, it's, it's good because, you know, you have discretion and you have autonomy and you have freedom. And those are things that I value. Um, but, you know, as like, as an anxious person, the idea of having to, you know, uh, exert <laughs> control over something like a subject guide or, you know, um, something like that, you know, that's a pretty terrifying thought, but you know, um, it's, it's good. It's good to be able to do that. So I don't know, Dan, we've covered so much ground. Um, I've taken up an hour and 40 minutes of your time. Um, so I, I guess, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, where can people find your work or where can people find you on the internet or a okay. right. um, bunch of places well <clears throat> um, if you really want to you can buy the book but uh, the book has a website with some elements of it available for free so certainly look there first <laughs> um, <clears throat> excuse me um, I don't have a really big social media presence I have you know the, the sort of stand, uh, standard academic sort of web presence uh, I keep off social media because like uh, the labor market, it sucks up your time. It's hard. My time's enough sucked up by the labor market. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Um, people can always write to me, though, uh, if, they, if they're curious about anything to do with capitalism. Like I said, it's always good to hear from people in the trenches, you know, or, well, even if you're not in the trenches, just it's always good to hear from people about, about uh, their, their, their perspective on political economy and whatnot. Um, and if any Melbourne Uni students are listening, I hope, you're, you know, I hope you have a look at the, um, taking the subject even if the fee hike goes through, which hopefully it won't. Um, <laughs> and where can they find you? Do you have a website or? Oh yeah, I do. Um, I'll put a link. I'll put a link below. But I think it's danhalliday.net. Okay. But, uh, yeah, you Google Google me or put my name and put my name in philosophy. I'm the only Dan Halliday in philosophy. I'm pretty sure about. Okay. Um, well, Dan. Hey, thank you so much. Um, this has been a really wonderful conversation, and I've learned a lot. So I hope you enjoyed it as well. Very much. And thanks for, you know, thanks for making time to have me on, on, on the podcast. Um, and keep, keep it, you know, keep, keep up the good work. Ah, cool. Thanks.